Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining me on this sports podcast where we have a lot to discuss. It's Friday, August 16, 2019, UFC 241. This Saturday, Cormier, Majocic 2. I'm going to talk to MMA Fighting's Jose Youngs about that, about Pettis and the returning Nate Diaz, Yoel Romero, Paulo Costa, all of that and more on the UFC 241 official breakdown on this show. And then I'm going to talk to my buddy Josh Whitten about a variety of sports topics, including the slow play and golf controversy, what Tiger Woods is looking like, Antonio Brown being crazy, and Boogie Cousins' injury, much, much more as well in the world of sports. It's Jose Youngs, followed by Josh Whitten. This is the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. Well, we're finally here, the biggest MMA pay-per-view of the summer, and I know there's a lot of money that's bet and a lot of uh, expensive wagers that go on in this sport, but the biggest lock, the biggest bet of the summer was that Jose Youngs is going to be on this episode of the Money Mitch Effect to preview UFC 241. Jose, thanks for joining the show. Anytime, man. Always happy to be on Money Mitch, especially when it's out here in your neck of the woods. Uh, yeah, and I'm kind of my neck of the woods, <laughs> but it is, uh, I'm glad you're in town, I'm glad you're here covering this pay-per-view, because we have a lot to discuss about it, Cormier-Stipe to the rematch from a year ago, and uh, before we get into that, there was media day today, Jose, you were there for, for a long period of time, and, and with that, with open workouts, what were some of the cool things you saw, you learned, and maybe from the outside might be interesting heading into this pay-per-view? Well, Nate Diaz no showed media day. That was the big. That was the big story. No, not really a surprise for the media. I know fans are a little disappointed. It's a little weird that, like all week, the narrative with Nate has been fighters like Anthony Pettis and Conor McGregor and everything. They've been kind of handed things, and the UFC is doing like trying really hard to market them. Well, Nate feels he's put in more work than them in the UFC, which is fair. He's been he was in the UFC longer, fighting com- like fighting nonstop, and he no like, even though he knew what he was worth, he felt like he could get paid more. Um, same 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 as his brother. Basically, Nate felt that he wasn't getting the same opportunities the other fighters were, and now he knows shows at UFC Media Day, and it was okayed supposedly by Dana White. So he's basically getting preferential treatment, kind of becoming what he's 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 hated. So that that was a little. That was a little bit of a nugget, but people weren't really like no me. Like when when we were all lining up to interview Nate, uh, one of the USDPR came out and goes, "Yeah, Nate's not going to be here." And we, n- literally, no one was surprised because <laughs> he showed up immediate. He showed up at open workouts, smoked a joint. Oh yeah, and then and then and then that was a wrap. So no one was surprised. But media day was all in all was good. Outside of Nate not being there, I got to talk to a lot of the the undercard fighters. Uh, Yo Armero was was is always a fun guy to talk to. Paulo Costa, those two fight. There's a little animosity animosity between them. Uh, same as Dana and Cor- uh, uh, Dana, Daniel Cormier and Stipe kind of had your boy Stipe have a little bit of a not hatred or bad blood, but they kind of get they just get under each other's skin. Right, uh, and th- that was none more apparent than at media day and at open workouts. They weren't they weren't being vicious like when John Jones and Daniel Cormier are in the same room. They're just like trading these little barbs back and forth that like you can just tell or just like poking at the other person. So all in all. Uh, not the best media day, but certainly not the worst. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen anything like what Nate Diaz did yesterday, but I guess you could say the same about Pettis's workout too, because that was freaky to see him <laughs> the way. He oh, ran. that was one of the best. That was like open workouts lately have been kind of hit or miss. Like you got the fighters that always that have amazing. a great workout. It was unbelievable. Like uh, Yola Romero always has a good open workout, but unfortunately he didn't do have an open workout this time. And like, there's just specific fighters you know. 
they're going to put on a show. Brian Ortega has a good open workout. Robert Whitaker has a good open workout. Tony Ferguson has a good open workout. Conor McGregor, if he does an open workout, is, is pretty awesome too. So, uh, for to, But lately, it's been very hit or miss. Frankie mm-hmm. had a good one in Edmonton. Chris, uh, But then like Max Holloway had kind of a slower one, same as Felicia Spencer. And Chris Cyborg didn't even work out. She just hung out with the fans and took selfies the whole time. So it was it was very refreshing to see Nate Diaz. No, not Nate Diaz. Anthony Pettis. It's not like he put on a show. Like he put on a real – he went through a real workout. Like yeah. he was sweating and everything, him and Daniel Cormier. So it, it was one of the better open workouts, that's for sure. For sure. And before we get to breaking down everything, start with the prelims, Jose. One of the things that jumps out to me about this card when I was looking at it top to bottom is that there's a lot of guys on here th- that we haven't seen in year, years plus. I mean – I can't remember uh, an excitement, I guess I want to say, an anxiousness to see some of these fighters, not just from what's at stake, but just the fact that a lot of these fighters haven't fought since 2018 and beyond. Absolutely. I mean, there's like, outside of Nate Diaz returning, like he hasn't fought since his second Conor McGregor fight back in like 2016, 2017, whatever year that was, uh, UFC 202. But like Paulo Costa hasn't fought since last July. Yoel Romero hasn't fought since last last June. Gabriel Benitez, I think, hasn't fought since last May. And the heavyweight uh, so, fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The heavyweight fight. Stipe hasn't fought since July. Daniel Cormier hasn't fought since November. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of the, the main card specifically has a lot of interesting storylines. And even Derek Brunson and Ian Heinisch. Mm. That's... Like, if you don't know anything about those guys, like, Derek Brunson's been in the UFC for a long, long time, obviously. Like, if you look at anyone in the top ten, he's fought him. Like, Romero, Jacques Array, Whitaker... Style bender, uh, he's fun. Who's who? But Ian Heinish, if you know, don't know anything about him, uh, way back in when he was in younger, he had, he ran into some trouble with the law and fled the United States. And when he came back, he was arrested and he was thrown in Rikers Island. Like he spent time in Rikers. <laughs> like he didn't know if he would survive the night most days because like maybe the security guards just didn't like him and they just let let things happen to him on purpose. So. He's like, I shouldn't even be alive, and now I get to fight people for a living, and he's really like using his platform to like try and improve other people's lives so they don't make the same mistake as him. So a lot of interesting storylines in the main card, that's for sure. Well, let's get into it with MMA fighting. So Jose Young's here on the Money Mitch Effect. The preliminary card to start has some interesting bouts. I'm going to ask you what stands out to you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead off with this one. There's one guy I can't wait to watch fight, and that's Devontae Smith. Because yeah, he's, his last couple fights have been, well, they haven't been long. I'll put it that way. Yeah, he's like, this is for sure his third opponent he's had. And second opponent this week, they just keep falling out. <laughs> he was supposed to fight John Medesi. It fell out, I think it was like end of July. And now he, then he was lined up to fight Clay Collard. And I absolutely love Clay watching Clay Collard fight. He's like a, he's like a, a white Korean zombie. Like They have a very similar style of fighting. He actually fought a very young Max Holloway back in the day and he was like Roy Jones him in there, like putting his hands behind his back, dropping his head, like doing like the wind up jabs and everything. So I love watching Clay Collard fight, but he got released from the UFC. He was an exciting fighter, just wasn't winning. And then when he returned, I was very, very excited. He didn't get medically cleared because it was such a short notice, short notice fight. Now he's he, he's being replaced again by Kama Worthy, who's never fought in the UFC. Said he was always being ready in case this fight happened. But Devontae Smith was already the biggest favorite, and now I can't imagine that's changed. No, no, it hasn't. Uh, I, I mean, props to Worthy for getting in there, but this is a tough, tough task. Uh, but there's some other good fights, as you know, on the uh, on the undercard as well. And uh, how do you say his name? S S and Asunico? How do you say? Uh, 
He's Which got one? 33 fights uh, under the Bantamweight fight right below that. He's fighting uh, Corey Sanhagen. Uh, I can't, oh, Rafael Asunso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rafael well, Asunso. He's a veteran, and, and this is a guy that I know he's had title aspirations, and it, it's probably past that point for him, but this is an interesting fight as well. And, and for being on the preliminary card, you usually see this one as the fifth on, I would think. I mean, this is a high-level fight too. I mean, I feel really bad for Rafael Asunso. He was at one point on like a seven-fight win streak mm-hmm. in the bantamweight division. He had a win over TJ Dillashaw. He has he had he has went over Brian Caraway like Pedro Munoz like these are some of the best of the best and then he loses to TJ Dillashaw in the rematch and then he beats Aljamain and he beats Bone Race he beats Rob Font like so he's beating extremely high caliber opponents he, he's just not the most exciting fighter and he's not he's, he's had a couple split decisions in there like two or three split decisions the fight against Marlon you could argue he lost the fight fight against Aljamain Sterling you can argue he lost and the first fight against TJ Dillashaw you can argue he lost so it's not like he's blowing people away he has maybe one finish in there against matt lopez and and matt lopez i think was uh had missed weight so it wasn't the best best performance on on his end but he should have gotten the title shot before he was actually if i'm not mistaken when tj dillashaw beat hannon burrell the first time he was a late notice he was that was was a late booking because the original main event had fall off and i believe hafael since was the original opponent for hannon burrell but he had broken his ankle so tj dillashaw stepped up and you saw how that worked out so Pedro Moon, I mean Pedro Moon, just Rafael Asensio has just not gotten really a fair shake from the UFC. Uh, in a row, she already got a title fight, and then puts together four wins in a row, and then loses, decides to rematch Marlon Moraes when he absolutely didn't have to because he already had a win over him, uh, and then gets submitted. So uh, Rafael Asensio is, is a bad dude. Like the only people he's lost to in the bantamweight division is Tito Dillashaw, former champion, and Marlon Moraes, former title challenger. So it's an interesting dynamic whenever he steps in because you know. If he does win, what does it really do for his career? For sure. I'm also interested to see uh, Bermudez fight. And I don't know, maybe oh, yeah. he'll come out with the Red Sox hat just to, to pander to you for, for some stuff. I don't know. I certainly hope so, man. He's another guy. I think he's like 14-0, 13-0. Re- it's real weird that he's fighting uh, Casey Kenny, an Arizona guy. Casey Kenny's another prospect. He's like 11-0 or 10-1 or something like that, and he's coming off his – UFC debut, but like Matt, Manny Bermuda's last fight against Benito Lopez, who at the time was also an undefeated prospect, and before that he fought Davy Grant. So it just seems like the UFC is just feeding him these prospects, and he keeps winning. Uh, not just winning, but like submitting. I think like 10 or 11 of his career wins are all submissions, so I, it's, I, I personally don't get the booking just because he's already beaten enough prospects. Why do you want him to do it again in case he can't? Yeah, that would appear to be questionable, but uh, I'm a fan of uh, I'm a fan of his, and I think that'll be a great fight in the undercard. Well, we got to move to the main card, and you touched on it earlier, but uh, I'm interested to see if Brunson has what it takes to stop the upcoming challenger here. I want to talk about him first, Jose, because he's almost like a gateway to this middleweight division. Like you have to pass the test to really prove that you belong at the upper elite. He's been up and down recently. I think the Whitaker fight stands out to some questionable decision making yeah. in his tactics and whatnot. But we know Brunson's a dangerous man in the octagon. Where do you think he's at, at this point in his career? I mean, he can beat anyone. He like, and that's like I know I say that a lot, but like if you look at his losses, like he loses to Yola Romero in his I think third fight in the UFC. He, he starts out in the UFC two and zero. He comes, he enters the UFC on a two fight losing streak to Kendall Grove. And, uh, and uh, um, Jacques Array, two excellent fighters, wins the first two fights, fights Yoel Romero, is uh, maybe two minutes away from winning that fight, and he breaks his ribs, and Yoel Romero finishes him. So say he doesn't break his ribs and he survives two rounds. He beats Yoel Romero. 
Then he beats Larkin, Ed Herman, Alvi, Hone, Carnero, Uriah Hall. I can't, I, I don't remember the exact order, but he like knocks out like four or five of them in a row, which is very close to the UFC record. And or if not, he might tie it. And so say he beats Yoel Romero or he survives those last two minutes. That's like eight wins in a row. And then he fights Robert Whitaker, leaves his head wide open. And I yeah. talked to him about that today. He's mm-hmm. like, I just wanted the knockout. That's all I wanted. He, he basically just threw out a game plan because it goes, if I knock out Robert Whitaker, I'm fighting for a championship. Got caught. Mm-hmm. Fights Anderson Silva. I actually think he beat Anderson Silva. A lot of people agree with me. So say he's not an idiot against Whitaker <laughs> and one judge gives it to him. He has like 14 wins in a row in yeah. the UFC. Plus he, he KOs Dan Kelly and Leota Machida. Yes, he loses to Jacare in the rematch. Yes, he loses to Israel Adesanya. But look at who he's lost to. Stylebender, Jacare, Andrew Silva, Whitaker, Romero. Those are all title challengers and former champions. So he's not losing to bums. And you could argue he should have won three of those five losses. And he could he's all, he could be a perennial contender already. So it's it's dumb decisions have cost him a lot. He's the first one to admit it. I mean, that, that margin is so thin. I, I would agree with you. I gave him the nod over Silva as well, but I don't think it was a robbery. And I think there you could ask Brunson. He'd probably like to clean some stuff up in that fight. It just shows you how tough it is to, to win at this level. Uh, but, like you said, he doesn't lose to bums. So this could be the opportunity for Heinish to go through there and make himself famous. I'm kind of going back to the undertaker in that reference, but uh, no, I mean, it, his story is insane because he wasn't just like a, a low level dr- drug dealer. This was like an international level trafficker. We're talking oh, yeah. about that has overcome a lot, survived a lot has been given a second chance in life that he obviously takes as a blessing. His fighting, I think, is, for, for UFC terms, pretty straightforward and simple. He's a great wrestler, and that right hand is deadly. What do you think? Do you think that he actually has the knockout power to stop Brunson early, or is Brunson just going to be too much for him? That's It's it's interesting because Ian Heinish is not afraid of anyone. Derek Brunson has beaten pretty much everyone uh, outside of like the top three fighters in the world, but Ian Heinish is he's very proud of the fact that he kind of took the long route to the UFC, like fought a lot on the on the regional circuit, won the LFA championship, went to the contender series, and then got into the UFC. And if you look at who he's beaten, like Cesar Fajeda and Antonio Carlos Jr. are two of very popular fighters in the UFC. They won the, the, the Ultimate Fighter Brazil. And this is his first non Brazilian he's fought in the UFC and Derek Brunson who hits like a trucks. The only thing is he's not a tall middleweight. I think he's like five eleven, five ten and that's that's George St. Pierre size. That's Conor McGregor's size. Maybe a few inches, obviously a few inches taller than Conor, but not the tallest middleweight in the world. The Derek Brunson, I think, has a significant reach advantage of him and height advantage. So if he can get in close, maybe, but I obviously favor mm-hmm. Derek Brunson given the fact that, yeah. again, like I've said it a million times, like he's only lost to champions and shit title contenders, uh, but Ian Heinish is the next man up. Like Derek Brunson agrees, like there's no one else I can fight right now because I've already fought and beaten or lost everyone. So he has no problem taking this fight. I just don't know if Ian Heinrich has what it takes. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think he's quite ready. I like the call-out, though, too. I think it's smart. That's the type yeah. of fighter you call out and, and, and give yourself that opportunity. But the winner of this fight's going to be on the upward and, and maybe trying to claw back in or for the first time in Heinrich's case in the mix for that middleweight division. Let's go to the featherweight fight that's the fourth on the card, Benitez taking on Sodik Yusuf and... Two interesting things to talk about for both these guys. Benitez, I want to start with him, Jose, because he hasn't fought since, I mean, maybe my second finish of last year. 
that <laughs> slam. I mean, it was unreal. And I know that he's got a lot of game, and I know that he's somebody that uh, has been in this position before, 31 years of age. But the other side of that coin is is Yusuf, who is fighting from Maryland by way of Nigeria, 9-1. and one, And by all intents and purposes, he could be the next big thing. Now, I know it's super early, and this is a good test for him. But from what you've seen and what you know about him and, and the featherweight division as a whole, is this kid the real deal? He could be. I think this is a very good test. He's, he's obviously he's a charismatic guy. He has Nigeria roots, which is obviously on the forefront of MMA right now. But I think this is a good test. Gabriel Benitez is no joke. I think he was like 18-5 and five when Yusef made his pro debut. Like He was 0-0. And, and Gabriel Benitez was like 18-4, and 18-5. He actually has a win over Clay Collard. Has wins over very impressive guys like Jason Knights and Sam Sicilia. He's fought in a ton, a ton in Mexico City. Which I was speaking with him today. He thinks gives him a significant advantage, considering like you know, very like you obviously know, like the Mexico City altitude is crazy. Oh yeah, it's one of the highest cities, like populate, it's one of the highest elevated cities in the world. So him training there gives him insane cardio. Yusef though is um, he is the he has an incredibly bright future. I know the UFC wants him to succeed, especially for this Nigerian and or just African market in general. He has legit power in his hands. And he trains with Lloyd Irvin, who's a, obviously a very controversial figure figure in the mixed martial arts world. But he's a good jujitsu coach. It's a good team he has down there, regardless of what you think of him. Uh, but I think he has like nine or ten career fights, and Gabriel Benitez has like almost thirty. Of those 30, I bet like 17 or so or, or stoppage wins, and he's only been finished maybe one or two times. So Yusef is good. I just don't. I just think this might be a little much for him right away. I do like this. It's a good test, especially with Benitez coming off that huge, long layoff and that's that injury. But I think it might be it. It, it, it like I. I'm a broken record. It's a good <laughs> test for Yusef. It's a good test for Benitez to see where he is health wise inside the octagon. I just you have to give it to Benitez, the favorite to Benitez, especially because he has almost three times as many fights as Yusef. I I I know what you're saying. I just want to point out this is where uh, the odds makers list Yusef as a is a pretty prohibitive favorite. So I doesn't. It's in I know there's so he's been active. And, yeah, no, and I and I get it. And we've seen upsets. Believe me, I mean. They would have been dead wrong about Asker and Masvidal, too. But, yeah, I mean, this is a progression. And I think what we've talked about on previous episodes with fights when we break this down is until you see it, it's hard to believe. You know that Benitez is a fighter and he has succeeded here. But I'm leaning with the with the future. I've seen <laughs> I've seen some of this kid's hands and, and what he's been able to do. But um, I don't know, man. I, I'm really interested to see this fight because I do think Benitez could, could carve out a win here. But I don't know. The knockout is just a real possibility to me. I mean, I get it. I do get it. I just think Benitez is – his training partners in Habib, Daniel Cormier, all the, Luke Rockhold, all those guys. I just think it's – it's Yusef isn't quite there yet, I think. I, and, again, I could very well be wrong. I mean, I saw the same thing with uh, Sayer Bahuzara. Uh, I mean, Sayer Bahuzara. I'm completely <laughs> wrong name. Uh Edmund, oh man, I can't. Remember, I cannot pronounce his last name. Uh, Tarver, I can't remember. Uh, it's Ronda Rousey's old team. He has has this young up up and coming kid, and he fought a guy who had like thirty more fights than him, and he went out there and submitted him in the first round. So uh, I've been wrong multiple times in the past, but I just think Benitez is is a little too much for Yusuf right now. Well, let's keep it moving. MMA fighting's Jose Youngs talking UFC two forty one breaking down the card, the third fight on the card, and maybe. Just maybe the most tightly contested fight we'll see all night is Joel Romero and Paul Acosta. Acosta's undefeated. Romero has three losses. Some of them 
were very, very close. Some of the wins and some of the losses have been right down to the wire. Yolo Ramiro, Jose, you almost forget because it's been so long. He's in his 40s now that this was an Olympic wrestler, like, and a damn good one as well. But he is a guy that just 13-3 and three on his record has been at the cusp of a middleweight title, has had his weight issues, has had close fights, haven't seen him in a year since that last Whitaker fight, which was very controversial to say the least. What kind of shape you talk to him? What kind of shape is Romero in? And do you think we'll get a vintage old Romero performance or are the age, the miles, and, and the difficulties of having to make weight at this division catching up to him? I think he absolutely crushes Paulo Costa. I don't Ooh, think it's going to be close. Okay. I, I don't think it's going to be close. Paulo Costa is coming off a stoppage win over Uriah Hall more than a year ago, and he's been out almost nearly as long as Yolo Romero. Like, if you look at Paulo Costa's like record and who he's being, like, he beat Johnny Hendricks, who should be a welterweight, and he was coming up and John, like a win over Johnny Hendricks in 2017. Mm, yeah, is not the Johnny is not a win over Johnny Hendricks 2013, especially a stoppage win when you, Paulo Costa was so much bigger. And then he beats Uriah Hall in an in an unbelievable fight. That was a very entertaining fight. But Uriah Hall is not a top 15. Way. He's not going to fight for the championship anytime soon. You look at you, who Yoel Romero has not only fought but beaten. Like the only per- person he's really lost to is Robert Whitaker, and there's an argument he won both fights. I think definitely beating, the second one. Um. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent the second one. Um, there's I I believe beating Yoel Romero is the hardest thing in the middleweight division. I think he gives problems to anyone. I think he could beat Robert Whitaker or Israel Adesanya. So no, I don't think this will be close. I actually think okay. he runs through Paulo Costa. Well, I uh, I think Ramiro wins a close one. I don't know that it's going to be as violent. It might be. I mean, I remember when he destroyed Weidman, and that was uh, that was a hell of a knee. Uh, but I do I do think the one thing I agree with you on is Costa's undefeated record is inflated, and I'm a little surprised. I don't know if you are that this is the fight after the the time off that he jumps back into the octagon with. Like, are you surprised that he took this fight? That he thinks that this is the jump up because. He is undefeated. He is a good fighter. This is a, a steep increase in competition. This is this is they have. There's personal beef in this. Uh, both fighters have called out each other. Like Paul, both of them have been flagged by USADA for potential anti-doping violations, but they're not like. Yolo Romero's was overturned to prove that he took a tainted supplement, and then Paulo Costa. It was like an IV thing, or like he broke the rules using an IV, or and then he, or he tested positive for yeah. like a substance was that IV. was in actual medicine. So it's not like they were popped for like anabolic steroids. And both of them have thrown that out, like to the media, like oh he took steroids, oh he took steroids. So both <laughs> fighters, like Paulo Costa, like this is personal. Like a high ranked fighter, B this is personal. And I think Yolo Romero just wants to fight uh, and and settle this. Uh, he doesn't really care who he fights. He doesn't really care about rankings. He just wants to get back in there and trade hands. So, but uh, there, there's there's definitely some sort of underlying animosity between these guys. Well, I guess my last question for you would be what's the future look like for Romero I mean where is is the trajectory like because he is in his 40s and you got to ask these questions with all athletes Tom Brady I guess would be notwithstanding but what's next is he fight is he going to make one push for the middleweight title uh, there's talks I mean of him maybe moving up a weight and going up to light heavyweight what do you think the future is going to look like for him I think he's going to stick around in middleweight he doesn't want to go up to light heavyweight because he's really good friends with John Jones he trained with John Jones a lot, so he said he'll never fight John, no matter how much money they offer him. So I think he'll stay, stick around in middleweight. I, but I'll give you—I'll have a better answer for you if he makes weight tomorrow, which is obviously <laughs> no true. guarantee. That's the closest. Uh, that might be the closest thing to call all weekend is what Romero will do with the, with the scale and will he make weight? Because it's always a battle. Well, two fights left. Diaz Pettis is the uh, second on the undercard, and uh, what a fight! 
What a fight that could be at the welterweight division. Nate Diaz back in the octagon for the first time since his loss to Conor McGregor pretty much three years ago, which is hard to believe. Taking on Anthony Pettis, who we've we've touched on it. We've previewed a lot of fight cards that he's been on recently, and he was the golden boy, the poster child, Wheaties box, you name it, of UFC. Went on that long losing streak, was kicked to the curb, and the rehabilitation tour has reached a new high. He's gotten some recent wins. And uh, the Thompson one especially, my goodness, there. And now he fights Nate Diaz. So I do I do want to get to Nate in a second. But Pettis' story, I think that might be overlooked this whole weekend, Jose, is how this once legendary, um, this once top dog almost in UFC is battling back from uh, almost being down and out. I think this is a story that needs a little bit more pub. Anthony Pettis? Anthony Pettis is, we were talking about, I was talking with this about with a colleague. There, Anthony Pettis might have the most impressive resume in the lightweight division ever like he might have one of the most impressive resumes in ufc history like you look at his like the last what 10 10 7 years of his career like what's the what's an easy fight he's had there is none he's fallen inside the top five to seven every fight i mean he jumped up to welterweight just to fight stephen thompson like I, i guess you could say the easiest fight he had was jim miller at ufc 213 and like is anyone going to tell you that Jim Miller is an easy fight? Absolutely not. He, has, he he might not be fighting for the title anytime soon. But yet, there's a reason he has the most fights in UFC history. So, uh, like wins over Benson Henderson, Cowboy, Donald Cerrone. I mean, uh, Joe Lozon, like Charles Oliveira, I mean, Jim even Miller. The like, losses, like Ferguson even the losses, and like Poirier, Ferguson, Poirier, <laughs> Holloway, yeah. Eddie Alvarez, RDA. Like he's fought. So, and even when he fought Clay Guida, Clay Guida is a former Strikeforce champion. Like so. Uh, he might have the most impressive list of fights in light, lightweight history, and Nate Diaz just adds to it. Well, how does this fight look to you stylistically? Because you know the game plan on Diaz. You know how tough he is. You know how he's not going to back down. And, and Pettis has proven, especially in that Fergus, Ferguson fight, that he's not afraid to see his own blood out there as well. These are two proud, two very tough guys. It hasn't been very very aggressive with trash talk, but you know they're going to just go in there and try to kill each other in the octagon. How do you see this breaking down stylistically? Um, it's it's very interesting. A lot of people say a lot of people favor Nate, which is fine, especially because he's he's, he's very popular right now. I slightly favor Anthony Pettis. Nate Diaz has never been good at dealing with kicks, especially leg kicks. He's very heavy heavy on his lead leg, so I favor I, I slightly favor Anthony, but. And this is a big but. Anthony Pettis doesn't deal good with pressure and insane, like, nonstop pressure. And that is Nate Diaz's game to just get, shove you into the fence and box you up with bug bites and then finish you off again, maybe submit you when you get frustrated and shoot him for a takedown. But, so it's two very stylistic. It's clashing styles that, that I don't, don't think enough people are talking about. Anthony Pettis is obviously one of the best kickers we've ever seen in the UFC. Nate Diaz stylist, historically does not do well against kickers. Anthony Pettis historically doesn't do well against pressure fighters, and Nate Diaz is one of the best pressure fighters you'll see in the lightweight or welterweight division. So uh, it's very, it, it, I think it's more of a coin flip than anything, but yep. I slightly favor Anthony Pettis simply because he's actually been active. I agree, uh, but I think I'm going to pick Diaz just because I feel like this is going to be ridiculous in there. And I do think that if Pettis can implement his game plan, he wins. I guess you can say the same with Diaz. I like Pettis maybe overall. As a better fighter, if that makes sense, but I think Diaz yep. in there, when all the wheels break down, I think he's going to be able to win. So that's what I'm picking there. I, I'm excited for this one. This 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 has maybe the most endless possibilities of what happens. I think whoever wins, this is 
this is obviously a lot of people's picks for fight of the night. Um, whoever wins, I wouldn't hate the winner fighting Conor McGregor. Obviously, Ooh. like if Ooh. if Anthony Pettis goes out there and beats Nate Diaz, I love that fight. Anthony Pettis has already said he was offered Conor McGregor twice, once in July, once during MSG. Didn't happen, and then he was offered Nate. He's like, all right, let's do this. I don't really care who I fight. Uh, so whoever wins, I don't hate that winner fighting Conor McGregor next. All right, before we get to the heavyweight fight, I just want to do an aside here since you brought him up. When when do you think he'll fight again, McGregor? I think we have to figure out what happens <laughs> with so this video crazy. that came out today. I know, so. I, and you know what? Awful, awful, inexcusable. But I, I just, I don't know. I mean, he's this black cloud just hanging over. It's almost like kind of a black cloud mixed with like that golden goose that everyone knows they want to fight him because he'll make them a lot of money. But there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. Yeah, I think it is too early to see. I was just thinking when. I know the opponent's not really, not really known, and that could be up in the air. But when, you know, when it'll be. But I guess we don't even know that. Yeah, I, I, Dana White said by the end of 2019, maybe. But Dana White also said, like, you never like Dana White all, has been on record saying a few times, like, you never really know what Connor. Like, he get he obviously gets a little more of like a, a leeway, and he'll he'll give him the benefit of the doubt stuff. But, like, Nate Diaz did an interview today, I think, on the Jim Rome show, and he's like, doesn't look good. Like, it's not a good look. And when you hear even – when you hear Dana have negative things to say, you know it's 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 not a good thing. So uh, w- I want to see how this plays out because also we don't know – I don't know the full story. Like, yeah. it, it, lo- it obviously looks bad, and there's no reason for anyone to hit another person like that. But what did that guy say to Connor? If it was like – a lot of provocation like maybe it's mm. slightly less worse yeah <laughs> but if there's no like there's no like don't hit people yeah like it's a it's a terrible thing to do no matter what but is it slightly less terrible <laughs> than we make it out to be i want to know the full story first a lot coming out of there but all right all right let's get back to the final fight the main event on this card the reason we're doing this ufc 241 cormier Myochich 2 the heavyweight title is on the line. We don't have to really rehash last year. Well, we will. I know it was a bad bad one for me, but Stipe lost first-round knockout to Cormier. Cormier became a double champion at the time. He's since vacated his light heavyweight title. He's fighting at 40, which he said he previously said he wasn't going to do. There's a lot of speculation on the future of what Cormier will do, but first things first, this fight, the rematch, I agree that there isn't bad blood, but there isn't the... Familiar, familiar, family-like vibe, I should say, there was before last fight. There's been some words said. There's been Stipe de- demanding his rematch and not really fighting anybody beforehand. Cormier's been out since back surgery and, and hasn't fought uh, anybody since November. And the Derek Lewis fight. So going into this, the vibe's a little different. It is, as you said, Jose, a little edgier. Yeah, it's it's... It's interesting because, especially because, like, if you remember their last fight, they coached on the Ultimate Fighter opposite one another. So there was a lot of interaction between DC and Stipe the whole the whole lead up, like for months at like weeks and weeks and maybe months at a time. They they were tied together. Um, Stipe lost fair play to him. He's not making any excuses. We've talked a lot about how both of us don't blame Stipe, but we wish he had taken another fight in the meantime between then and now. It kind of felt like he was like sour grapes, like I should get a rematch. Fair play to the man. He deserves a rematch. But if Daniel Cormier wasn't healthy, just take yeah. another fight. Like right. Daniel, when Daniel Cormier lost to John Jones the first time, he went out and he fought a couple more times yeah. and earned his rematch with John Jones. So I would have liked to see Stipe fight. Came, I would have liked to see fight, Stipe fight King Velasquez. I do, on that th- I, I do think that part of it is not 
Stipe being mad necessarily at DC. There's that animosity that existed between Stipe and, Stipe and Dana. Like, it, it just did. Oh, yeah. And, and that was, had a, I think that was part of it, too. He also had a daughter, so he's a new mm-hmm. dad. So he said, he's like, I enjoyed watching my daughter grow up. And I'm like, well, I'm yeah. not going to argue it. I'm I mean, not going to argue with the that. The thing is that both these guys are good guys, and that's what makes this kind of a little, like, edgier as well and, and kind of weirder that they're – that they've had this disagreement. As far as the fight goes, and we've talked about this too, Cormier won in a flash knockout, in a very, very effective flash knockout. But it makes you think, and it makes you think what a rematch would look like because we don't really know what would have played out if this would have gone three, four, five rounds. So what do you think the fight looks like, assuming that it does last through, it does last to the later rounds this time? Because we were kind of... I guess left running a little more. Cormier won, but do you think this could be a lengthy fight? Um, I think it'll go more than one round for sure. So we also didn't really see Daniel Cormier wrestle yeah. against Stipe Miocic because it went it was so quickly. So I, I'm I'm personally I'm curious how Stipe would handle wrestling against an Olympic wrestling captain. But a lot of people don't point out like do, I'm, obviously you watched the fight. We took mm-hmm. I mean we were messaging about it right mm-hmm. away when it happened. There was that one eye poke that was a that paused the fight. But yeah. if you go back and watch that fight, there's like a handful of other eye pokes from from DC on Stipe. Oh, I yeah. don't believe they, I don't believe they were intentional, but it happened. Mm-hmm. But they didn't stop the fight because Stipe just kept walking through it. And it, I know he will never bring it up because right. a lot of people I saw today, media day, they'd be like, "So those eye pokes," and he's just like, "Next question." Yeah, like he will not make excuses. And that's him. For losing because because of an eye poke, he lost fair and square. Um, but I I I know there's questions that like, what if that didn't happen? Will he would like because if you if you watch that press conference, like his eyes are a little bruised up around the edges from getting stabbed <laughs> in the face so much. So uh, I think a what if he doesn't get caught? What if he doesn't get eye poked? What if there's wrestling from Daniel Cormier? What can can Stipe? survive wrestling against an Olympic record. I mean, obviously, he's a good wrestler. He's knocked out some of the best people. He's, he's re- He wrestled Francis Ngannou for five rounds. So I think there's a lot of questions on both sides. And this is one of those few times where I actually agree with the immediate rematch. I just wish because it was so long between that maybe Stipe took another fight. Because, like, I want... Jose Aldo to rematch Conor McGregor. Like, I want to see what would happen if it lasted mm-hmm. longer than 13 seconds. Yeah. So it's it, there's always questions, and I'm glad we're going to be able to answer them on Saturday. Also, I just, I just like the fight. Like, I don't even care if the belt's on the line. Mm-hmm. This is just a good fight. Yeah, I think, uh, obviously, Stipe isn't going to let what happen. Anytime, anytime, especially a champion loses that way, you get a rematch. You're studying tape. You're working on not getting, in this case, knocked out or out of a clinch like he did. Uh, you know Cormier is working on stuff as well, and I think Cormier fighting at heavyweight, which we saw, has some real power behind those punches. I, I'm just—I I am stylistically intrigued. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Stipe homer. He's a Cleveland guy, but the fight itself, if it goes into the late rounds, is so fascinating to me because Cormier is an Olympic wrestler. He's got that Greco-Roman style. Stipe has res- a wrestling background, and he throws very effective punches. And, and and is a is a striker that I mean outside of the John Jones factor with Cormier there really hasn't been anybody like Stipe that he's fought before. Cormier is a slight favorite. I understand he's a champion, and I understand that he deserves to be re- rated as such. But I do think Stipe has enough in the well to win the rematch. I'm going to make the pick. Yeah, 100. percent I'm like, going I'm to make the pick, and I, and I don't think it's that bold. I understand being no, the underdog, but I'm going to go Stipe. And I think it'll be a great fight. I do. That's my prediction. I, I agree. Like it's like the odds aside, 
Stipe winning, I wouldn't consider an upset. I mean, he was the champion. Like yeah. he knocked out Fabrizio Verdum off his back foot, like going like going backwards. Knocks out Overeem, former K1 champion. Knocks out JDS, former UFC champion, one of the best strikers of all time. And then beats France Ngannou dominantly for five rounds of the guy that people – he has like the touch of death. He punches you once, you just fall apart. So uh, I absolutely think Stipe has – I think Stipe is arguably the greatest heavyweight ever in UFC history just based on accolades alone. I think talent-wise at peak, I think Kane I wouldn't argue would that. be better. Um, I think if Daniel Cormier hadn't dropped down to light heavyweight those few times uh, to, be, to to face the John Jones and everything, because what people don't talk about is like, yeah, like Daniel Cormier has only lost to John Jones. He's undefeated at heavyweight. He's never lost a heavyweight. You'd have seen this fight under- a lot sooner. That's for sure. <laughs> like, it wouldn't oh, have been this absolutely. long. Like, uh, for all we know, Daniel Cormier could be the greatest heavyweight of all time. He beat Stipe again by knockout. I, I wouldn't argue that. So who are you? Uh, who are you picking in this one? DC. I'm gonna. I got okay. a champion. I always. Okay. I'll favor the champion. Okay. Uh, first round knockout. The second time. Like if if Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor had fought, I'd favor Conor McGregor. So Daniel okay. Cormier. But I'll say third or fourth round. Uh, knockout. Yeah, I'll say TK, I'll say TKO. Okay. I don't want to okay. say like a flash knockout. I think it'll be like one of those ground and pounds, like referee steps and stop the fight. Okay. Well, and the one last thing on the scenarios. Where do we go with? Each outcome. Let's play that game. Stipe wins. Is Cormier out, you think, for sure? I know the Jones thing is the only thing he'd say he'd consider. Is Cormier out, win or lose? Um, if he loses, I bet he, they do the trilogy against Stipe, which is more than fair. Oh, man. Uh, yes, let's go. More than fair. So do, they'll do the trilogy, and then win or lose, that'll be it for Daniel. Uh, I think if he wins, he vacates the title, drops down to 205. And Stipe will fight Francis Ngannou for the vacant heavyweight championship. Wow. You know, and that wouldn't be bad. I just, and I like John Jones as a fighter, greatest ever in my book. I want to see that fight at heavyweight now. But that's just me. I mean, I know that there's probably other factors going around as well, but that's the one I would want to see. But I get it. It makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I I don't think John Jones would go up to heavyweight. I mean, Money talks, so if they, <laughs> if, if they give him seven figures, obviously he would. Uh, but Dan, I think Daniel Cormier said it perfectly. Who in the light heavyweight division is going to make John Jones money? That's no one. Point. There's there's no like if Luke Rockhold had won at UFC 239, that's the fight. But he didn't. Not only did he lose, he got knocked out bad. Like John Jones versus John Blackovitz, John Jones versus Corey Anderson. Like no, like those fights aren't going to make him a lot of money. Daniel Cormier has is. But in, on the flip side, Daniel Cormier was like, I've never made more money than when I fought John Jones. I know John Jones what likes to make money. The only money fight out there is me. So if he doesn't want to fight me, I don't have to fight. I don't need John Jones. John, John Jones needs me. And I tend to agree with him. I don't care what weight class they fight. I just want to see that third fight. I do too. Wow. Well, we've said it all on UFC 241, Jose. This was great. Uh, one final question for you because I had to tie it into the show. Are we ready now to say in August of 2019 that the best wrestler in the world is Jay White? Wow. Was not expecting that question. <laughs> See, catch you no, off guard. Jay no. White is not okay. the best not wrestler yet. in the world. No. He might be. <sighs> no. Okay. I think a better question is he the best non Japanese fighter in the world. Best, okay. re- best non Japanese wrestler. So I still rate Okada better. I think Ibushi's better. Kenny, I think it, it Kenny, like Kenny Omega is an unbelievable wrestler. He's just not wrestling nearly as much. But 
Jay White's a great character. He's a great heel. Uh, he's not. He might. He's just not even the best wrestler in New Japan. I love him a lot. He's just not not the best yet. Okay, we he's got super it. We, young though. Yeah, twenty seven. That's why I'm asking when. You know, twenty six, twenty seven. Some time. Uh, I had to get that out there for our New Japan following as well. Just get some <laughs> wrestling in there. But Jose Young's catch all the stuff on MMA fighting. Try to sneak in some sleep when you can, but otherwise have a blast covering this pay-per-view in Anaheim this Saturday. Oh, you know, man. Always have to be on the Money Mitch Show. All right, huge thanks again to Jose Young for fitting me in the schedule, breaking down UFC 241. A reminder that you can catch all of his work and the work of his talented colleagues on MMAfighting.com. They'll be covering... UFC 241 all weekend, weigh in today, fight card tomorrow, some interviews, some good stuff there, check out their content. All right, now it's time to switch gears, talk with Josh Wynn, friend of mine, Tennis Channel co-worker about a variety of sports topics, including Bryson DeChambeau and his slow play controversy, Nick Kyrgios going into full meltdown mode, we talk football, basketball, a little baseball as well, it's Josh Wynn now on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, we've got to talk about a lot of ranging topics in the sports world. To do that, bringing in my boy Josh Wynn back on the show again. Josh, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Well, thanks for having me, Mitch. Looking forward to a little chit-chat this morning. Yeah, yeah, we already we already covered the UFC pay-per-view in detail. I know we have a rooting interest in that, but uh, we're, we're rounding third of summer. We're about ready for football season. Still a lot to get to, but... As always, anytime there's something in the golf world, I'm going to turn to you and ask you your opinion on something. And despite the major season being over, there's still a lot of drama and some fireworks. And uh, I got to get your take on something in particular, and that's this slow play debate going on. It, it's been it's been brewing, I'd say. There's been a few notable characters, but we've reached a, a tipping off point. At least I think we have in the public eye. With Bryson DeChambeau and, and him getting into it with Brooks Kepka, Justin Thomas is getting involved. A lot of different players are speaking out basically on the fact that DeChambeau takes forever to go through a round <laughs> of golf. So I know you're somebody that watches this stuff religiously, has played the game and, and taught it at a high level. Is it as bad as it looks? Because I, I, as a casual golf fan, I watch this and think, my God, why don't these guys speed up? It's pretty bad. And, um, Bryson's digging himself a, a hole here with his comments, but uh, the issue at hand, I mean, we're in the playoffs, so we're down to the last three events, all the eyeballs are on us, and he was playing in a, a very notable pairing last week, so PGA Tour Live was was on him the whole time, the, the, the camera never cut away, and you could really see the how deliberate he was, and it's painstaking, and when you have other top notable players that aren't as slow as him, it's going to come to head, and these kids are not afraid to talk nowadays. Justin Thomas and Brooks are not afraid to hop on social media and let them know or let the world know what they believe. Um, it might not be the the most appropriate way to deal with things, but it's it's already changing the way the PGA Tour is reacting. They've already said that they're going to look into this. Now, with a tournament and a half to go in the season, probably nothing will change in, in the next couple weeks, but uh, it, it's – it's time that something's been done and or that something is done and <laughs> Bryson is definitely a culprit. Yeah. Uh, so 
Well, and I do want to bring up the fact that this specific round was about as bad as it got, where it was taking him minutes to line up shots. He's walking up and down the fairway, up onto the green to kind of see things. And, and these are top players. These aren't just casual fans and, and middle-of-the-road players. These are top players that took an issue to that. Now, uh, to be fair, he wasn't the only one. Holmes was, was causing issues at the Open Championships with his slow play. Again, Brooks kind of was agitated <laughs> as well, but... I want to get to the bigger issue at first, Josh, and that's this hasn't just been going on recently. I, I read some Tiger Woods comments from a decade ago where he said slow play has kind of got to be addressed. And for whatever reason, I know you said, you know, golf said they're looking into it, but nothing's changed in, in terms of penalizing, in terms of enforcing this rule. Is it realistic to even expect that that's going to happen? Because this isn't a new issue. Well, like you just hit the nail on the head. They have to enforce the rules. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You get warned. Then you, it's a one stroke in stroke play. It's a one stroke penalty for your first defense. It's a two stroke penalty for your second defense, and it's disqualification for your third defense. We never even get to the point on the PGA Tour where they enforce these rules. People get put on the clock every week, but from that point on, they never get penalized. So even if they fall further behind, the PGA Tour is too weak to penalize these people. So it goes back to the point of the PGA Tour has to really buckle down and make some changes to the way they enforce the rules. It being a top player and a player that has grown in popularity over the last couple of years and is a new kind of force on tour, it's the perfect time to do this, Mm -hmm. but they're scared and they don't want to put the, their sport in a negative light and they don't want to tarnish anything that Bryson's done because he is good for the game. His philosophy while completely 180 degrees from everybody else is good for the game but slow play is bad for the game i mean there's been initiatives over the last few years about speeding up the pace of play jack nicholas has has been a major proponent about shortening the amount of holes they play for the recreational golfer to get around in faster than four or five or six hours that it takes so hopefully with this crossover season it's really difficult but hopefully the pga tour can figure something out this fall which is actually the 2020 season it starts in three weeks but that they can figure something out to put in even on the uh-huh. on the corn ferry or the the smaller tours to try to get the the top dogs playing in a reasonable amount of time right you know i'm on board 100 percent with anything that the golden bear says so definitely agree <laughs> with that but no i mean i appreciate the way Bryson plays, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, I'm all for new approaches to sports that we've seen, and I think it is something that's good for the game. And, and I understand that if you're not going to enforce this, and it's working for these guys, they're just going to keep doing it. I mean, that's exactly. that's how sports works. If you're, if you're able to, I don't want to even say get away with it, but if you're able to have success doing it a certain way, until you're told not to do it, it's just going to keep happening. But Having said that, I mean, <laughs> telling Brooks's caddy say something to my face. He's just been handling it <laughs> all wrong. That's a notable example of trying to poke the bear literally. Uh, instead of just saying, I'm going to worry about my own business, even if he doesn't want to change and has no plans on changing, he's not making it better with his comments in the media and to his fellow players. No. And, I mean, as someone who watched the tour every week, I mean, there are deliberate, there are slow players over the history of, of time. But slow play comes up in the situational circumstances so if you watch the open championship a couple years ago when jordan spieth won he hit that ball right on 13 100 yards right remember they had to take they had to get a rules uh decision they had to figure out line of sight to the green that took 20 minutes to play one shot 
Now, that's a specific instance. Like when Tiger chipped in in 2007 at the Masters on the 16th hole, he took 20 minutes to try to figure out where that ball is going to land up on the hill before it could roll back down the hill. But that's not every hole. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now with Bryson is it's too often. It's happening. The occurrences are happening round, round by round. So you can't on one hand say that you're not a slow player when there's evidence out there that you are a slow player or even if you're not even a slow player on every shot you're a deliberate player on some time mm -hmm. so you have to figure that out and for him to say he runs to his ball and <laughs> okay, takes yeah. less than the 40 seconds allotted i mean that's just absurd that's really really pathetic it, it was gonna happen with brooks because he's like not exactly a golf purist to say the least and and has talked about that as well but bryson just be be careful with that. Don't say <laughs> say it to my face to the biggest guy on tour. Um, but it is interesting. The last thing I wanted to talk on golf with you, Josh, is Tiger. Obviously, something to talk about with him. And uh, it was a great year. Won a major. Won the Masters again. You know, had his issues at the rest of the majors. But mm -hmm. going into this tournament, there was issues of if he played, his back is always going to be a constant the theme. Said he felt okay. What do you think Tiger's looking at going into the last couple weeks of the season? Um, I watched every shot yesterday. He, he looks good. I, he just hasn't doesn't have the reps, uh, and that's kind of what it takes. It's, it's not kind of what it takes. It's what it takes on the PGA Tour to perform well. He is in a good situation in Chicago. I look forward to see what he does today. But it's warm. It's humid. So the back's not tight. You know, at the PGA Championship on Long Island, up in Monterey, at the U.S. Open, and in Northern Ireland, it was cold, and that tightens up that fused back, and he just doesn't feel as comfortable over the golf ball. He's got this week, it, unless he goes on, uh, there's no cut this week, so he's got three more rounds to see if he can get up in the top 11. He has to finish 11th, tied for 11th or higher to make it to Atlanta next week. Mm -hmm. So if he doesn't do that, then I don't think he's playing until mid-October. He's playing over in Japan, which yeah. is uh, for the first time they're having a PGA Tour event there. He's committed to play, uh, and I believe that's a little ode to the Olympics next summer. I know he really wants to compete and try to, win a gold medal before his career is over and it's probably probably the last chance he has next summer also playing in a little skins game there with Rory McIlroy Jason Day and Hideki Matsuyama so that should be a fun little one day exhibition but other than the hero challenge in December his own event down in the Bahamas it's the last time we're going to see him probably after this weekend so unless he goes low but I don't know if you saw those scores yesterday everybody's going low so uh -huh. um, I want him to May continue is to have good health and, and to compete for the next 10 years so if he has the only plays eight events a year that's fine because if he's in contention for one of those majors then it's gonna it's gonna keep the keep golf in the forefront in the in the minds of of the casual sports fan i mean we can talk about bryson and brooks and uh and rory and justin and jordan all we want but we all know that there's only one guy that really moves the needle and that's tiger so um, I want him to go low today, but I'm not going to predict anything for you. Uh, I just hope that that he can maintain and and uh, and be good enough to go for the next right. five years. Let's say Tiger's reached that point in his career where it's funny a lot like the tennis guys we cover, where he's thinking about long term health and doing his best at the biggest tournaments at majors. Mm -hmm. So. Everything that he does is health-based, and uh, I think that the biggest thing for him is to play these rounds of golf and not and, and feel good. You know, even if he's not shooting as low and gearing himself up for next year, making another run. So it's always good to see him, but I do think we need to, and I, and I think that's with any athlete that gets old, kind of taper expectations a little bit 
for some of these tournaments because I don't know that the daily grind is going to always be in his best interest. Exactly. I think that's brilliantly put. And and uh, it's just a matter of getting the public to, to think that way with us because everyone wants him to compete every week. And, oh, my God, he's terrible and this and that. <laughs> He won the Masters. I mean, yeah. and he basically went on the victory tour afterwards. Which yes, this is why nobody, hardly ever, other than Tiger in his prime and a few others. I mean, Brooks recently, but it's so hard to repeat. Go back to back in majors because you win a major, especially if it's the first time or the first time in a while. It's a career-altering, life-altering moment to be able to go right back and then put the time in. When the rest of the tour is just constantly grinding. I mean, exactly. I mean, look what Gary Woodland's done since the U.S. Open. Absolutely nothing. He's in the same exact boat. Tiger is about uh, missing Atlanta yeah, next life week, changed. which is the top and 30. His, his life, life changed, changed and, yeah. and he didn't care about the rest of the season. Yet Tiger's played like four events since the Masters, and he doesn't really care because he's already won the Masters this year. So if he doesn't make it to Atlanta, obviously it would be disappointing considering he won the event last year. But I don't think he really cares. And like you said, he went on that little extended tour with the family over to Thailand with his mom and kids and girlfriend. And he loved life again. He's happy. So right. I'm happy. I'm a Tiger fan, and I look forward to the next five years on tour with him, hopefully. Hopefully. We're all we're all hoping that, Josh Wooden here on the Money Mitch Effect. I do want to kind of run through some other sports topics with you as well. Did you watch? Now, I know a lot of our, our listeners out there like tennis as much as I do, but did you see the Kyrgios meltdown? In I did. Yeah, it was a record fine. I mean, it was the most the, the ATP tour is fine since they were since we've kept track of this thing in 1990. So 113 grand, and it, and the and the punishment isn't officially over yet. No, and the breakdown was pretty funny of the two thousand dollars for here and five thousand dollars for this and twenty thousand dollars for this. I I I I don't uh, I don't want to say I like the antics at all. I, I think they're embarrassing, and, and I think they're more embarrassing. To the number nine or number nine seed, Kashinov, and it's mm-hmm. it's a shame that that he has to deal with this. Some of this probably is a little not one-upsmanship, but you know, your gamesmanship. You're trying to compete against your opponent and see if you can get them off or kilter off or rattled. But I don't know. I think he's in his own head, and, and it's to the. It just doesn't seem like it's conducive to him playing good right. tennis, especially two weeks after he wins Washington. So. I don't know. Yeah, I, I have a few takes on this. One being, yes, I mean, Kyrgios and this umpire, Ferguson Murphy, have history. I think it's important to point out. Uh, in the summer, he played in Queens Club, and that's where it kind of started with them, where they got they went back and forth over a challenge or something, and he said his hat looked ridiculous. And then two weeks later, at Washington, where he ends up winning, he calls him a potato with arms and legs. I mean, it's just been brutal back and forth between those two. So clearly he doesn't like him. And this is what I'm going to say about Nick Kyrgios. The, the shame in all of this, like him or hate him, is that he's got the talent to be – he's top five talent in the world, clearly. I think I don't think anybody will argue that. He's got the game that he should be at a point where he's contending for, if not winning majors. But the problem with his antics is that it's completely disheveling him from when he's playing great tennis. Catching off match, case in point, wins the first set, is going along fine in the second, and it takes one thing, whether it's getting involved with the umpire, in this case over a time violation, a fan saying something in the crowd, one fan out of you know 10,000, and he loses his mind, and it, it throws him completely off his game. There's no excuse for, for cursing out an umpire and, and, and spitting in his direction, but I think the bigger issue here, Josh, is that he... 
he doesn't have the mental capacity to keep it together. I mean, these are these are very very light, I should say, adverse moments that completely throw him off of his game. And if you're catching off, if you're Sitsipas, if you're a player on the other side of the net, Medvedev, you got to just keep your composure because you know he's going to melt down. And it's really a shame that we're on the verge of this player now, 24, 25 years old, that he's going to be looked at quite possibly as a waste of talent. Yeah, and we've heard over the years all these people try to counsel him, whether it's his home countryman Laver or at one of these bigger events when it's McEnroe or, or, or someone like that. And when you take a player like McEnroe, who had his own outburst and is famous for that, but he channeled that injury into something positive. And at this point, it doesn't look like Kyros is doing any of that. He's doing it more for a show as opposed to rile himself up and, and light that fire under his own self to try to change a point of match or change the momentum. Right. And, I mean, <laughs> you can't be serious. It's still 30 years later, one of the most hilarious lines ever. But that was an outburst that he was obnoxious and crazy, too. But, but he always he dug won. in. I mean, that was he the thing. He always dug in, and it, like he would bite his lip and, and win after that. But it, it seems like Kyrgios goes off the rails. And, I mean, holy cow, I have to go to the restroom bringing two rackets that was that was i mean i mean he got stuff like yeah he got fined the tenth of his income but he made a little over a million dollars last year and he got fined a hundred grand so i mean it is it's crazy and i do think yes the game likes him you could even say the game needs him a little bit he's entertaining he draws crowds but think about the modern sports fan josh and i'm not trying to put anybody down but we like to see craziness and chaos and and people flame out that's just mm -hmm. part of the show for his career I mean, he's one of the few guys that can, I know Federer lost yesterday, but he's one of the few guys that could beat the big three, is always in matches and won't back down. You say, what's the problem? Why, why is it that early in tournaments that against anybody, good or bad, he's that got this mental dilemma? I mean, I really think, you know, he doesn't have a coach. And I could see why. How could you really want to coach this guy? <laughs> but he needs somebody to get through to him mentally or it's just not going to happen. There's no way that I would trust him to win seven straight matches at a Grand Slam regardless of who he plays, whether it's Federer and Nadal-like quality opponents or, or just club players, because you have that over-the-shoulder over the cloud of just him going to break down and, and, and snap. I know. Speaking of Federer and uh, Nadal, both of them I've heard asked numerous times about Kyrgios, and they all say, oh, well, he's got some of the best uh, play in the game, but he doesn't have it between his, his ears. And when the two best players of all time – are saying these things about you, it might want you to take a step back and say, okay, you know, what can I do to try to alleviate this issue in my game? And at this point, Kiros seems to be just more about upsetting people and making making the story more about mm -hmm. him than about his game. And that's the that's the part that's a problem. Right. And that's the part that's that we all want to see. We all want to see good tennis. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's it is uh, unfortunately it is, not what we're kidding. It is entertaining, um, and we'll see. I mean, the suspension could be coming down too. We don't know. Uh, I will say one thing: it might be a little bullet claim. There's one guy that could get through to him, and depending on what his tennis career looks like, it's Andy Murray. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Murray does call it quits here soon if that that becomes a working relationship because that's the one guy Kyrgios respects and I think would listen to. But that might be a little bit down the road. Uh, all right, Josh Wynn here on the Money Mitch Effect. More to more to discuss. I got to get your condolences again. It's been a rough-ish summer of Laker basketball, but Boogie's Oof. out for the season, it looks like, with the torn ACL. Sad on two fronts, more importantly, other than the Lakers losing another roster, another roster guy, rotational guy. 
Boogie's career is in serious pearl now. This is multiple injuries in a row. I don't know. I mean, he's becoming another what if in NBA lore. Unfortunately, it seems that uh, he's never going to quite get right after all the injury history he's had. It, it it does, and it's oh man. This was a as a lifelong Laker fan. This was exciting because he'd signed for that three point five one year, looking to show his stuff. It would have been. I mean, we all saw how great he was with AD in New Orleans, and uh, it's just disappointing to to see what could have been or to think what could have been. Um, hopefully, he can buckle down. I don't think the Lakers can cut him or anything, so he's got a great medical staff that can hopefully get him back up and running and. But you're right. The last three years, you go down with an Achilles, then a popped hammy, and then a, an ACL in a matter of less than three years. Something's wrong with your lower extremities. And it's just a shame for my Lakers. Now, I'm sure the rest of the NBA and the rest of the league are really happy, but nobody wants to see anybody injured. Um, and now the Lakers need another big. So is Carmelo going to come in as oh, our four man. now? Like, oh, my God. Like, this is it's not well, the news I needed to see. <laughs> I, uh, I I don't I don't want to play devil's advocate here. I don't know that this dramatically affects what the Lakers could or will or will not accomplish this year, other than being as terrible for the cap reasons and, and money, obviously. I don't know what we were going to expect from Boogie because he was coming off of injuries, and I don't know that he was going to, even if he is healthy, going to be able to come right in and dominate. But But I think... The issue that I'm seeing with this Lakers roster isn't so much talent, Josh. It's just that this is me on the outside. Where exactly do the pieces fit? Where Anthony Davis is totally against playing a five position. Ron doesn't really like to play a four. I mean, I just where do these pieces fit in is my underlying question. Some of the signings I feel like is just throwing stuff against the wall and hoping that you get, you know, you strike gold. It's going to be intriguing. They're they're they are going to have some interesting lineups. Um, they have a lot of small guards and they have a lot of like threes. And uh, as you just mentioned, AD doesn't want to play the center position and they have Javel, but what, what's Javel going to play 23 minutes a game. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, I know he had a good season last yeah. year, but they, they didn't sign Lopez like they needed to um, or a couple other bigs because they had boogie. So um, I, <clears throat> Losing Boogie means we have two roster spots left. Nothing's happened yet with Iggy, but that doesn't fill the need of a big man like you need. So it's going to be interesting. Are we going to go more to the small ball model that Golden State's been successful with? But we need the players to do that. We need the the Draymond to play that that kind of swing position that can guard three players. Right. Now, is that going to fall to LeBron, who's uh. in his 20th season? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I just can't, I can't recall a year in the West, especially, where I have no idea what the seating's going to look like. Like, you could no, tell me about 10 fun. different scenarios, 10 to 15 different scenarios where are the Lakers going to be a top two, three seed? Could they be in that four to six range? Same with the Clippers. How many games will Kawhi play with George's injury? Teams like the Nuggets and the... Uh, Utah Jazz. Jazz that are going to be better. Golden State. I mean, there is just so many possibilities, and that's why I think a team like the Lakers will be best suited to start quickly. I know LeBron's old, but you got to start. No, we got to get out of the yeah. gate real well. And I've you know seen all these prognostications. The the schedule's light at the beginning. They could be eighteen and two out of the gate, but well, that's, yeah, you still got to play the games. I mean, exactly. you still you still have to play the games. It's going to be. I mean, 
the Lakers didn't even make the playoffs the last six years, but everyone in the NBA wants to beat them more than than they want to beat, well, <laughs> Toronto, last year's champion, or anything like that, because of the fact that it's LeBron and AD. And they don't like this whole, as you, as the last time we spoke on the show, the whole Rich Paul NBA. They don't like how he's manipulated the Lakers and the, the West. And as we were talking about the other day, the whole, like, they're changing the time of these double headers because the West is so dominant and they need some viewership in the East. So my entire life, 40 years, Laker games tipped off at 735. There was 19 of those next year on national television. Now only 10 of them are going to kick off at 735. So they moved nine of those starts up for those double headers, which is great because as we were talking about the other day, no one's going to be watching on the East Coast at midnight <laughs> yeah important to also point out that for the laker fans and the, and the true diehards out here your local games won't change so you don't have to worry about that and i think it was a smart move because of viewership and and the talent is just so much and the, the teams are competitive in the east and, and they could there could be a champion and be a champion out of the eastern conference but the amount of talent in the west and the migration out west is just crazy so uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm excited. We're almost getting ready for that, but we got football season beforehand. And uh, Josh Wynn here on the Money Mitch Effect. Last thing I wanted to get to. In your lifetime following sports, where are we going to rank on the list of confounding, maybe dumbfounding NFL athletes? Where is Antonio Brown going to rank? Wow. Uh, <laughs> up there. <laughs> let me get him out of my cryo machine first to figure that one out. Um, this guy with his helmets and everything he's more of a distraction than <laughs> you think his, so <laughs> yeah than his skills provide on the field so i mean what's he doing i mean is this what gruden wanted when he signed him i mean is this is this just more clickbait for hard knocks to bring some notoriety to the las vegas raiders before they move next year i i don't understand this in any way shape or form i don't understand how mayock and gruden got together and said hey let's bring in antonio brown because this is a perfect addition to our team it's not like they're bringing Larry Fitzgerald, who yeah. is one of the most respected, like, you know, <laughs> leaders from my receiver position ever. Especially like, this team. I mean, this is a team in rebuild, yeah, and that's putting it mildly. So I don't know how, how a guy like Brown is talented as he is. And they didn't really give up as much as you would think for him, but he is a receiver in his 30s. And it remains to be seen when he actually does play <laughs> what what he brings on the field, but off the field, uh, we're already seeing it with the cryo chamber and, and some of the some of the antics there. I, I don't think he's necessarily a a bad guy, but I don't know how he's going to improve that locker room if you're trying to build something from scratch. They've basically been gutting their roster the past two years. I gotta wonder who made this call and, and who was really championing for it. Because you watch Hard Knocks, you see Gruden. I know he's kind of tapering it for the for the fans for the cameras, <laughs> but he doesn't look thrilled that all this drama is going around his training camp. He really doesn't, and he's got a quarterback who is the anti-Antonio Brown. I mean, Derek Carr is, you know, down the middle, very religious guy, and not not of the same ilk or mode that Antonio Brown is. And it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens with them. It, it happens in their backfield, see if they can get, field a, a team that's going to get some wins for them before they head to Vegas. But it, it's... Antonio Brown <laughs> certainly has made the first couple weeks of training camp uh, a little more interesting. And Hard Knocks next week, uh, week three, should be pretty fun with him finally getting some some action on the field. 
<laughs> I love how Hawk has just glossed over the fact that Gruden <laughs> hated Carr last year. <laughs> just completely was willing to cut bait. And I was like, well, we're stuck with him for a little while with this contract. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he traded, he traded a guy who was in his fourth year, Cooper, for a receiver who was in his 12th year. In Brown? Yeah, and then Cooper lit it up for Dallas. Yes. Uh, you know, I think that there are pleasant surprises. The Raiders, if they if they put stuff together, could be better than we think, but they're, they're a ways away from contending. And, and you bring a guy like Brown and do a contender, I'm surprised, honestly surprised he accepted it. I mean, I think it might prioritize what, what's in his life, what he wants out of it more than anything. When mm-hmm. you go from, as much as I dislike the Steelers, a team that was in contention more often, to a team that's in rebuild and you're in your 30s, but maybe he just wants to live in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he wants to hang out with, with Money May and, and just kick it and uh, just chill. I'll tell you, though, it's it's my theory of uh, I'm more afraid of the Steelers and the Ravens as a Browns fan because there's a chemistry factor in sports, especially football, and I think it's a blessing when you get guys like that as talented as they are out of the locker room. It really is, and when you guys have – kids like John Connor who want to run the ball as hard mm-hmm. as they can every single time they get it and they have Juju Smith who as a Trojan fan uh, always a fan of his but he doesn't care about the about anything else and all he cares about is seems is winning and he took that mantle from AB last year and the Steelers didn't care because it wasn't all about the braggadocious me too or yeah yeah me 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 that AB brings to the table and you know I hate the Steelers too Mitch but they have something going there that only your your Browns can hopefully emulate because that's what the chemistry that needs to develop between Bake and OBJ and Landry and and now without Duke you, you don't have that cancer in your locker room that was taking attention away from the product on the field that was is the only thing that matters and Kitchen didn't need certainly didn't need another right. distraction there so get rid of them. And that was a good move, although I don't think a fourth-round pick was enough for him. But mm-hmm. Well, I, I just know. think make sure that the team is the most important thing and, and there's no one bigger than it. It's a cliche thing in sports, but anytime you have something like that develop, it's better, even if you're sacrificing someone in the short term, to just move on and move forward with guys that want to be there. So, um, you know, all, all credit to Duke. He was a fun Brown, and I wish him well in Houston. And uh, I, I just think a team like Pittsburgh even – you know, I'm always going to be, it's like I got PTSD with them. It doesn't matter what they say. I'm always going to be worried about them the rest of the year. But, uh, no, Josh, this was fun, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. We'll see what happens in baseball season because the Indians I was going to say, go try. Go, good luck to your tribe. <laughs> hey, last night, it's always good when they drub the Yankees. So that yes, was a, that nine, was a was nice. Was it 19-5 to five or something like that? 19-5. <laughs> to five. Everybody had two hits. <laughs> it was great. It was 7 nothing in the first inning. Uh, yeah, so I think the Yankees uh, got what they deserved last night, at least. I couldn't agree more. Josh, thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Hope to talk to you soon. All right, Mitch. Take care, bud. Thanks so much. And that's it for today's show. Big thanks again to Josh Whitten and Jose Youngs for appearing on the Money Mitch Effect. A reminder that you can catch every episode of the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect. It pops right up. You can leave a rating, review, subscribe there. Check us out, the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page, and follow me on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. Next week, college football week zero starts. Miami, Florida, the U taking on the Florida Gators. 
as well as uh, Hawaii, Arizona. We're going to bring back Running With The Money podcast. Kent Brown, myself, we're going to be breaking down all the games, all the best bets that you need to make. Don't miss out on that. And just enjoy sports. we got preseason football, college football coming, UFC 241, the baseball stretch run. It is a great, great time. And the U.S. Open. Can't forget about that. There will be a U.S. Open preview show next week. I think that we'll be dropping, I think, the Monday of the U.S. Open. So don't miss that. I am Mitch Michaels. Thank you for joining me on the Money Mitch Effect. Until next time, keep enjoying sports.